Chapter 3 of Faulkner. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Faulkner by Mary Shelley. Chapter 3. Towards the end of a hot, calm day of June, a stranger arrived at Treby. The variations of calm and wind are always remarkable at the seaside and are more particularly to be noticed on this occasion since it was the stillness of the elements that caused the arrival of the stranger during the whole day several vessels had been observed in the offing lying to for wind or making small way under press of sail as evening came on the water beyond the bay lay calmer than ever but a slight breeze blew from shore and these vessels principally colliers bore down close under it endeavouring by short tacks to procure a long one and at last to gain sea-room to make the eastern headland of the bay the fishermen on shore watched the manoeuvres of the different craft and even interchanged shouts with the sailors as they lay lazily on the beach at length they were put in motion by a hail for a boat from a small merchantman the call was obeyed the boat neared the vessel a gentleman descended into it his portmanteau was handed after him a few strokes of the oar drove the boat on the beach and the stranger leaped out upon the sands the newcomer gave a brief order directing his slight luggage to be carried to the best inn and paying the boatman liberally strolled away to a more solitary part of the beach a gentleman all the spectators decided him to be and such a designation served for a full description of the new arrival to the villagers of treby but it were better to say a few words to draw him from among a vast multitude of who might be similarly named and to bestow individuality on the person in question it would be best so to present his appearance and manner to the mind's eye of the reader that if any met him by chance he might exclaim that is the man yet there is no task more difficult than to convey to another by mere words an image however distinctly it is impressed on our own minds the individual expression and peculiar traits which cause a man to be recognized among ten thousand of his fellow-men by one who has known him though so palpable to the eye escape when we would find words whereby to delineate them there was something in the stranger that at once arrested attention a freedom and a command of manner self-possession joined to energy it might be difficult to guess his age for his face had been exposed to the bronzing influence of a tropical climate and the smoothness of youth was exchanged for the deeper lines of maturity without anything being as yet taken from the vigour of the limbs or the perfection of those portions of the frame and face which so soon show marks of decay he might have reached the verge of thirty but he could not be older and might be younger his figure was active sinewy and strong upright as a soldier indeed a military air was diffused all over his person he was tall and to a certain degree handsome his dark grey eyes were piercing as an eagle's and his forehead high and expansive though somewhat distorted by various lines that spoke more of passion than thought yet his face was eminently intelligent his mouth rather too large in its proportions yet grew into beauty when he smiled indeed the remarkable trait of his physiognomy was its great variation restless and even fierce 
The expression was often that of passionate and unquiet thoughts, while at other times it was almost bland from the apparent smoothness and graceful undulation of the lines. It was singular that when communing only with himself, storms appeared to shake his muscles and disfigure the harmony of his countenance, and that when he addressed others, all was composed, full of meaning and yet of repose. His complexion, naturally of an olive tint, had grown red and adust under the influence of climate, and often flushed from the inroads of vehement feeling. You could not doubt at the instant of seeing him that many singular, perhaps tragical, incidents were attached to his history, but conviction was enforced that he reversed the line of Shakespeare and was less sinned against than sinning, or at least that he had been the active machinator of his fate, not the passive recipient of disappointment and sorrow. When he believed himself to be unobserved, his face worked with a thousand contending emotions. Fiery glances shot from his eyes. He appeared to wince from sudden anguish, to be transported by a rage that changed his beauty into utter deformity. Was he spoken to, all these tokens vanished on the instant. Dignified, calm, and even courteous, though cold, he would persuade those whom he addressed that he was one of themselves, and not a being transported by his own passions and actions into a sphere which every other human being would have trembled to approach. A superficial observer had pronounced him a good fellow, though a little too stately. A wise man had been pleased by the intelligence and information he displayed, the variety of his powers, and the ease with which he brought forward the stores of his intellect to enlighten any topic of discourse. An independent and a gallant spirit he surely had. What then had touched it with destruction, shaken it to ruin, and made him, while yet so young, abhorrent even to himself? Such is an outline of the stranger of Treby, and his actions were in conformity with the incongruities of his appearance, outwardly unemployed and tranquil, inwardly torn by throes of the most tempestuous and agonizing feelings. After landing, he had strolled away and was soon out of sight, nor did he return till night when he looked fatigued and depressed. For form's sake, or for the sake of the bill at the inn, he allowed food to be placed before him, but he neither ate nor drank. Soon he hurried to the solitude of his chamber, not to bed, he paced the room for some hours, but as soon as all was still, when his watch and the quiet stars told him that it was midnight, he left the house. He wandered down to the beach, he threw himself upon the sands, and then again he started up and strode along the verge of the tide, and then sitting down, covering his face with his hands, remained motionless. Early dawn found him thus but on the first appearance of a fisherman he left the neighborhood of the village, nor returned until the afternoon. And now, when food was placed before him, he ate like one half famished, but after the keen sensation of extreme hunger was satisfied, he left the table and retired to his own room. Taking a case of pistols from his portmanteau, he examined the weapons with care, and putting them in his pocket, walked out upon the sands. The sun was fast descending in the sky, and he looked with varying glances at it and at the blue sea, which slumbered peacefully, giving forth scarcely any sound as it receded from the shore. Now he seemed wistful, now impatient, now struck by bitter pangs that caused drops of agony to gather on his brow. 
he spoke no word but these were the thoughts that hovered though unexpressed upon his lips another day another sun oh never never more for me shall day or sun exist coward white fear to die and do i fear no no i fear nothing but this pain this unutterable anguish this image of fell despair if i could feel secure that memory would cease when my brain lies scattered on the earth i should again feel joy before i die yet that is false while i live and memory lives and the knowledge of my crime still creeps through every particle of my frame i have a hell around me even to the last pulsation for ever and for ever i see her lost and dead at my feet i the cause the murderer my death shall atone and yet even in death the curse is on me i cannot give back the breath of life to her sweet pale lips o fool o villain haste to the last act linger no more lest you grow mad and fetters and stripes become your fitter punishment than the death you covet yet after a pause his thoughts thus continued not here not now there must be darkness on the earth before the deed is done hasten and hide thyself o son thou wilt never be cursed by the sight of my living form again thus did the transport of passion embrace the universe in its grasp and the very sunlight seemed to have a pulse responsive to its own the bright orb sunk lower and though a little western promontory with its crowning spire was thrown into bold relief against the glowing sky as if some new idea were awakened the stranger proceeded along the sands toward the extremity of the headland a short time before unobserved by him the little orphan had tripped along and scaling the cliff had seated herself as usual beside her mother's grave the stranger proceeded slowly and with irregular steps he was waiting till darkness should blind the eyes of day which now appeared to gaze on him with intolerable scrutiny and to read his very soul that sickened and wreathed with its burden of sin and sorrow when out of the immediate neighborhood of the village he threw himself upon a fragment of rock and he could not be said to meditate for that supposes some sort of voluntary action of the mind while to him might be applied the figure of the poet who represented himself as hunted by his own thoughts pursued by memory and torn to pieces as acted by his own hounds a troop of horrid recollections assailed his soul there was no shelter no escape various passions by turns fastened themselves upon him jealousy disappointment love rage fear and last and worst remorse and despair no bodily torture invented by revengeful tyrant could produce agony equal to that which he had worked out for his own mind his better nature and the powers of his intellect served but to sharpen and strike deeper the pangs of unavailing regret fool he had foreseen nothing of all this he had fancied that he could bend the course of fate to his own will and that to desire with energy was to ensure success and to what had the immutable resolve to accomplish his ends brought him she was dead the loveliest and best of created beings torn from the affections and the pleasures of life from her home her child he had seen her stretched dead at his feet 
He had heaped the earth upon her clay-cold form, and he the cause, he the murderer. Stung to intolerable anguish by these ideas, he felt hastily for his pistols, and rising, pursued his way. Evening was closing in, yet he could distinguish the winding path of the cliff. He ascended, opened the little gate, and entered the churchyard. Oh, how he envied the dead, the guiltless dead who had closed their eyes on this mortal scene, surrounded by weeping friends, cheered by religious hope. All that imagined innocence and repose appeared in his eyes, so beautiful and desirable. And how could he, the criminal, hope to rest like one of these? A star or two came out in the heavens above, and the church spire seemed almost to reach them as it pointed upward. The dim, silent sea was spread beneath. The dead slept around. Scarcely did the tall grass bend its head to the summer air. Soft, balmy peace possessed the scene. With what thrilling sensations of self-enjoyment and gratitude to the Creator might the mind of ease drink in the tranquil loveliness of such an hour. The stranger felt every nerve waken to fresh anguish. His brow contracted convulsively. Shall I ever die? he cried. Will not the dead reject me? He looked round with the natural instinct that leads a human being at the moment of dissolution to withdraw into a cave or a corner where least to offend the eyes of the living by the loathsome form of death. The ivied wall and paling, overhung by trees, formed a nook whose shadow at that hour was becoming deep. He approached the spot. For a moment he stood looking afar. He knew not at what, and drew forth his pistol, cocked it, and throwing himself on the grassy mound, raised the mouth of the fatal instrument to his forehead. Go away! Go away from Mama! were words that might have met his ear, but that every sense was absorbed. As he drew the trigger, his arm was pulled. The ball whizzed harmlessly by his ear. But the shock of the sound, the unconsciousness that he had been touched at that moment, the belief that the mortal wound was given, made him fall back. And as he himself said afterward, he fancied that he had uttered the scream he heard, which had indeed proceeded from other lips. In a few seconds he recovered himself. Yet so had he worked up his mind to die, so impossible did it appear that his aim should fail him, that in those few seconds the earth and all belonging to it had passed away, and his first exclamation as he started up was, Where am I? Something caught his gaze, a little white figure which lay but a few paces distant, and two eyes that gleamed on him. The horrible thought darted into his head. Had another instead of himself been the victim? And he exclaimed in agony, Gracious God, who are you? Speak! What have I done? Still more was he horror-struck when he saw that it was a little child who lay before him. He raised her, but her eyes had glared with terror, not death. She did not speak, but she was not wounded, and he endeavored to comfort and reassure her till she, a little restored, began to cry bitterly, and he felt thankfully that her tears were a pledge that the worst consequences of her fright had passed away. He lifted her from the ground while she, in the midst of her tears, tried to get him away from the grave he desecrated. The twilight scarcely showed her features, but her surpassing fairness, 
her lovely countenance and silken hair so betokened a child of love and care that he was more the surprise to find her alone at that hour in the solitary churchyard he soothed her gently and asked how came you here what could you be doing so late so far from home i came to see mamma to see mamma where how your mother is not here yes she is mamma is there and she pointed with her little finger to the grave the stranger started up there was something awful in this childish simplicity and affection he tried to read the inscription on the stone near he could just make out the name of edwin rabby this is not your mother's grave he said no papa is there mamma is here next to him the man just bent on self-destruction with a conscience burning him to the heart's core all concentrated in the omnipotence of his own sensations shuddered at the tale of dereliction and misery these words conveyed he looked earnestly on the child and was fascinated by her angel look she spoke with a pretty seriousness shaking her head her lips trembling her large eyes shining and brimming tears my poor child he said your name is robbie then mamma used to call me baby she replied they call me missy at home my name is elizabeth well dear elizabeth let me take you home you cannot stay all night with mamma oh no i was just going home when you frightened me you must forget that i will buy you a doll to make it up again and all sorts of toys see here's a pretty thing for you and he took the chain of his watch and threw it over her head he wanted so to distract her attention as to make her forget what had passed and not to tell a shocking story when she got home but she said looking up into his face you will not be so naughty again and sit down where mamma is laying the stranger promised and kissed her and taking her hand they walked together to the village she prattled as she went and he sometimes listened to her stories of mamma and answered and sometimes thought with wonder that he still lived that the ocean's tide still broke at his feet and the stars still shone above he felt angry and impatient at the delay as if it betokened a failing of purpose they walked along the sands and stopped at last at mrs baker's door she was standing at it and exclaimed here you are missy at last what have you been doing with yourself i declare i was quite frightened it is long past your bedtime you must not scold her said the stranger i detained her but why do you let her go out alone it is not right lord sir she replied there is none hereabouts to do her harm and she would not thank me if i kept her from going to see her mamma as she calls it i have no one to spare to go with her it's hard enough on me to keep her on charity as i do but and her voice changed as a thought flashed across her i beg your pardon sir perhaps you come for missy and know all about her i am sure i have done all i can it's a long time since her mamma died and but for me she must have gone to the parish i hope you will judge that i have done my duty toward her you mistake said the stranger i know nothing of this young lady or of her parents who it would seem are both dead of course she has other relations that she has and rich ones too replied mrs baker if one could but find them out 
it's hard upon me who am a widow woman with four children of my own to have other peoples upon me very hard sir as you must allow and often i think that i cannot answer it to myself taking the bread from my own children and grandchildren to feed a stranger but to be sure missy has rich relations and some day they will inquire for her though come the tenth of next august and it's a year since her mother died and no one has come to ask good or bad about her or missy her father died also in this village asked the stranger true enough said the woman both father and mother died in this very house and lie up in the churchyard yonder come missy don't cry that's an old story now and it's no use fretting the poor child who had hitherto listened in simple ignorance began to sob at this mention of her parents and the stranger shocked by the woman's unfeeling tone said i should like to hear more of this sad story pray let the poor dear child be put to bed and then if you will relate what you know of her parents i dare say i can give you some advice to enable you to discover her relations and relieve you from the burden of her maintenance these are the first comfortable words i have heard a long time said mrs baker come missy nancy shall put you to bed it's far past your hour don't cry dear this kind gentleman will take you along with him to a fine house among grand folks and all our troubles will be over be pleased sir to step into the parlour and i will show you a letter of the lady and tell you all i know i dare say if you are going to london you will find out that missy ought to be riding in her coach at this very moment this was a golden idea of mrs baker and in truth went a little beyond her anticipations but she had got tired of her first dreams of greatness and feared that in sad truth the little orphan's relations would entirely disown her but it struck her that if she could persuade this strange gentleman that all she said was true he might be induced to take the little girl with him when he went away and undertake the task of restoring her to her father's family by which means she at least would be released from all further care on her account upon this hint she spake she related how mr and mrs rabby had arrived with their almost infant child death already streaked the brow of the dying man each day threatened to be his last yet he lived on his sufferings were great and night and day his wife was at his side waiting on him watching each turn of his eye each change of complexion or of pulse they were poor and only had one servant hired at the village soon after their arrival when mrs rabby found herself unable to bestow adequate attention on both husband and child yet she did so great as evidently to cause her to sink beneath her too great exertions she was delicate and fragile in appearance but she never owned to being fatigued or relaxed in her attentions her voice was always attuned to cheerfulness her eyes beaming with tenderness she doubtless wept in secret but when conversing with her husband or playing with her child a natural vivacity animated her that looked like hope indeed it was certain that in spite of every fatal symptom she did not wholly despair when her husband declared himself better and resumed for a day his task of instructor to his little girl she believed that his disorder had taken a favourable turn and would say oh, mrs baker please god he is really better doctors are not infallible he may live 
and as she spoke her eyes swam in tears while a smile lay a sunbeam on her features she did not sink till her husband died and even then struggled with both her grief and the wasting malady already at work within her with a fortitude a mother only could practice for all her exertions were for her dear child and she could smile on her a wintry smile yet sweet as if warmed by seraphic faith and love she lingered thus hovering on the very limits of life and death her heart warm and affectionate and hoping and full of fire to the end for her child's sake while she herself pined for the freedom of the grave and to soar from the cares and sorrows of a sordid world to the heaven already opened to receive her in homely phrase mrs baker dwelt upon this touching mixture of maternal tenderness and soft languor that would not mourn for him she was so soon to join the woman then described her sudden death and placed the fragment of her last letter before her auditor deeply interested the stranger began to read when suddenly he became ghastly pale and trembling all over he asked to whom was this letter addressed ah sir replied mrs baker would that i could tell and all my troubles would be over read on sir and you will see that mrs rabby feels sure that the lady would have been a mother to poor missy but who or where she is is past all my guessing the stranger strove to read on but violent emotion and the struggle to hide what he felt hindered him from taking in the meaning of a single word at length he told mrs baker that with her leave he would take the letter away and read it at his leisure he promised her his aid in discovering mrs rabby's relatives and assured her that there would be small difficulty in doing so he then retired and mrs baker exclaimed please god this will prove a good day's work a voice from the grave had spoken to the stranger it was not the dead mother's voice she whatever her merits and sufferings had been was to him an image of the mind only he had never known her but her benefactress her hope and trust who and where was she alethea the warm-hearted friend the incomparable mother she to whom all hearts in distress turn sure of relief who went before the desires of the necessitous whose generous and free spirit made her empress of all hearts who while she lived spread as does the sun radiance and warmth around her pulses were stilled her powers cribbed up in the grave she was nothing now and he had reduced to this nothing the living frame of this glorious being the stranger read the letter again and again again he wreathed as her name appeared traced by her friend's delicate hand and the concluding hope seemed the acme of his despair she would indeed have been a mother to the orphan he remembered expressions that told him that she was making diligent inquiry for her friend whose luckless fate had not reached her yes it was his alethea he could not doubt his fatal mistake his she had never been and the wild resolve to make her such had ended in death and ruin the stranger had taken the letter to his inn but any roof seemed to imprison and oppress him again he sought relief in the open air and wandered far along the sands with the speed of a misery that strove to escape from itself the whole night he spent thus sometimes climbing the jagged cliffs then descending to the beach 
and throwing himself his length upon the sands. The tide ebbed and flowed, the roar of ocean filled the long night with sound. The owl flapped down from its home in the rock and hooted. Hour after hour passed, and driven by a thousand thoughts, tormented by the direst pangs of memory, still the stranger hurried along the winding shores. Morning found him many miles from Treby. He did not stop till the appearance of another village put a limit to solitude, and he returned upon his steps. Those who could guess his crime could alone divine the combat of life and death waging in his heart. He had, through accident and forgetfulness, left his pistols on the table of his chamber at the inn, or in some of the wildest of the paroxysms of despair, they had ended all. To die, he fondly hoped, was to destroy memory and to defeat remorse. And yet there arose within his mind that feeling, mysterious and inexplicable to common reason, which generates a desire to expiate and to atone. Should he be the cause of good to the friendless orphan, bequeathed so vainly to his victim? Would not that, in some sort, compensate for his crime? Would it not double it to have destroyed her, and also the good of which she would have been the author? The very finger of God pointed to this act. Since the child's little hand had arrested his arm at the fatal moment when he believed that no interval of a second's duration intervened between him and the grave, then to aid those dim religious misgivings came the manly wish to protect the oppressed and assist the helpless. The struggle was long and terrible. Now he made up his mind that it was cowardice to postpone his resolve, that to live was to stamp himself poltron and traitor. And now again he felt that the true cowardice was to die, to fly from the consequences of his actions and the burden of existence. He gazed upon the dim waste of waters, as if from its misty skirt some vision would arise to guide or to command. He cast his eyes upward to interrogate the silent stars, the roaring of the tide appeared to assume an inorganic voice and to murmur hoarsely, Live, miserable wretch! Dare you hope for the repose which your victim enjoys? Know that the guilty are unworthy to die. That is the reward of innocence. The cool air of morning chilled his brow, and the broad sun arose from the eastern sea as pale and haggard. He retrod many a weary step toward Treby. He was faint and weary. He had resolved to live yet a little longer till he had fulfilled some portion of his duty toward the lovely orphan. So resolving, he felt as if he paid a part of the penalty due. A soothing feeling which resembled repentance stole over his heart, already rewarding him. How swiftly and audibly does the inner voice of our nature speak, telling us when we do right. Besides, he believed that to live was to suffer. To live, therefore, was in him a virtue, and the exultation, the balmy intoxication which always follows our first attempt to execute a virtuous resolve, crept over him, and elevated his spirit, though body and soul were alike weary. Arriving at Treby, he sought his bed. He slept peacefully, and it was the first slumber he had enjoyed since he had torn himself from the spot where she lay, whom he had loved so truly, even to the death to which he had brought her. End of chapter 3